Hey there, welcome to the Creative Classroom Podcast. I'm your host, John Spencer. I'm a former middle school teacher, current college professor, and I am passionate about seeing teachers transform their classrooms into bastions of creativity and wonder. And so on this podcast, I share ideas and strategies. I talk about things that work, but also those big epic fails that I've made along the way, because ultimately I believe the teachers play a profound role in helping students reach their creative potential. And thinking about this idea of the creative classroom and the student being creative, the reality is our students are going to inhabit this really unpredictable world. With machine learning, which I talk about often, it's in my book, um, The AI Classroom, other advanced forms of AI, students are going to need to become really good at what AI can't do and really different with what it can do. They will need to be adaptable as they navigate the maze of an uncertain future. But this requires a mindset of self-direction. And you can imagine self-direction as this overlap, this Venn diagram with self-manager on one side, self-starter on the other side. That middle zone is what it means to be self-directed. And so if that's the case, what I want to talk about is what does it mean to empower students with voice and choice in terms of getting started with the process? Because for a lot of us, this idea of student choice can feel really overwhelming. So without further ado, here's the concept of seven tips for getting started with student choice in the classroom. Student choice goes beyond simply picking an item out from a choice menu. It's about self-directed learners taking charge of their own learning, and you can see it in multiple zones of learning. So this is the concept of students choosing the course text, the topics or themes, students asking the questions, students figuring out what strategies they're going to use, what type of grouping works best for them, having the option of going quieter or louder, getting to decide where they sit, um, selecting the scaffolds that they're going to use, the interventions and the enrichments that they're going to have, um, empowering them to decide where they will share their learning, um, empowering students in terms of publishing their work and, and owning that publishing process. Um, also, the creative process, the assessment process, self-assessment, peer assessment, all of these things are aspects of what it means for students to be empowered. It's having students own the project management process so that you're not managing every project for them. So if we think about it, that's a lot, right? Like that's what we're aiming for. But this can be daunting for students and teachers alike. Back in my second year of teaching, I began this journey from student engagement toward empowerment. And I assumed that students would embrace the freedom, the autonomy, and well, even the responsibility of student ownership. But I, I quickly realized that many students were anxious and overwhelmed with choice. I realized that I had to include structures and protocols. I couldn't just let them loose to do whatever they want. I needed to be clear about expectations. I had to revise my assessment processes so that, so that students could actually experience the, the freedom to make mistakes. In some cases, I had to model what choice looked like and even scaffold the process through a gradual release of responsibility approach. In other words, I jumped straight into student choice too quickly and I made a ton of mistakes. So with that in mind, I wanna share seven tips for getting started with student voice 
and choice in the classroom. Number one, start with just one project. As a teacher, it can feel overwhelming to completely overhaul your pedagogical approach. As I just mentioned, student choice requires structures and protocol, but it takes time to develop these systems and structures and to even learn them yourself. Whether you're thinking about student assessment or the tools and protocols for student collaboration or project management, you know, whatever it may be, there's a learning curve. And the learning curve requires um, a lot of time, a lot of mental energy, and, well, a lot of mistakes in the beginning. On top of that, there's a reality that we don't want to just abandon the best practices that we're already using. There are tons of great lessons that you're already doing that don't require much choice, and you don't want to abandon everything. While it's important for students to embrace empowerment, there's a a time and a place for focusing on student engagement or even compliance. I'll, I'll, I'll consider reading, for example, with all the research on the science of literacy, on what it means to do um, phonics well, the truth is you're gonna probably need a compliance-driven approach if you're teaching early reading, and it's gonna be systematic. You're gonna teach phonics and blending, and students aren't gonna show up to school saying like, well, let's talk about the ah sound, right? Like they're not gonna say, hey, um, I have this great question about morphology that I want you to answer. No, you're probably going to have to introduce it to them. And it's going to be very teacher-centered. And you know what? That's okay. We need compliance, which is very teacher-centered. We need engagement, which is both teacher-centered and student-centered. And we also, at some point, need empowerment. But also, if we think about it this way, there's a learning curve, like I said. And so I would encourage you as you think about this notion of not abandoning your practice, right? As you think about keeping those good things that you're already doing, ask yourself the question, what am I already doing to empower my students? And how can I build on this? What are some small changes I can make in this journey towards student empowerment? If you begin with small, little incremental changes, you can almost imagine it like a video game. You don't fight the ultimate boss on level one. Instead, you start with smaller challenges and learn the process as you go, right? If you're in Super Mario Brothers, in level one, you're getting a bunch of lives, you're learning how the game works, and then later on, eventually, you're going to fight Bowser, and it's going to become hard. So... You might start out with a few student reflections or self-assessments. You might do a single choice menu. You might empower students to choose the scaffolds. You might um, take your small groups that you've been doing and turn them into opt-in workshops where students can uh, essentially volunteer for a workshop and they're in a small way being empowered to own the scaffolding process. It might be that in the middle of direct instruction, You stop and you have students jot down as many questions as they can, turn to a neighbor, answer each other's questions, do a stand-up, hand-up, pair-up where they're going to answer one another's questions, and then ultimately do a Q&A together as a class. Again, small area of empowering them to ask questions. You're not having to abandon your entire practice as an educator. 
If you're finding it hard to integrate choice into a traditional practice, that's okay. What you might do is actually go full-scale project or creative work by doing a design sprint. Um, what you might do in this case is a short maker project with rapid prototyping. You might do a wonder day project. And here what you're going for in a design sprint is something that lasts 45 to 90 minutes. Um, it might be on a Friday afternoon. It might be on a Monday morning. Um, but the goal is to get students to own every aspect of the creative process for 45 to 90 minutes and then scale back when you need to into a more traditional activity afterwards. So there's a lot of different ways that we could do it. The second tip that I have is to take a gradual release of responsibility approach. Um, this was what, one of the mistakes I made, right? I went full scale into choice. I did not start with a small strategy or a small uh, project. I did a massive genius hour project that was an epic fail in my second year of teaching. And I did that with a couple other projects as well. What I should have done is use this gradual release approach. So when you start with a small single strategy, a mini project, a sprint, any of those things, student choice becomes manageable for you as a teacher. It feels less risky. Um, you have the time to reflect on it and you're not abandoning your entire teaching practice. You're not changing everything about what you do. But for students, this also has the benefit of allowing them to work through a learning curve as well. You know, starting out small can ease students into voice and choice. And this is especially true with students who are high achievers, who are used to being compliant, students with anxiety who um, are, are nervous about that much choice and worried about doing things wrong. Um, students who struggle with executive function issues, uh, a lot of different students actually have a really hard time with voice and choice. And so what you're doing is you're starting small for the students as well, and then you're building on that. And what that does is that allows students to um, take this gradual release approach where they're going to build on the the, the small wins like a video game and build up to more and more and more choice. And so again, you're taking this incremental approach and you're building on it with every progressive moment. All right, so what does this look like? I'm gonna share a few examples. If you think about choice menus, they've been around for a long time, right? Choice boards, choice menus. But what you can do is you can start out with giving a student an assignment with three choices in it. Right? And then the next time you do a tic-tac-toe choice menu. And then the next time you do an advanced choice menu where students actually select the scaffolds, um, the, the learning targets, the scaffolds that they need, the, um, the content that they're going to access, and, and maybe their means of representing their learning. So they're in product. So they're going to choose the, the learning targets, the, the, the content they consume, the scaffolds they use, and then their, their final result. And that's a more advanced choice menu that would be overwhelming for them in the beginning. And then lastly, you can move into something big like a genius hour project. So notice you're starting small in choice menu and then you're building on it. Or think about reading. You might in the first stage have students read a shared article that you do as a class. This activates prior knowledge for them. And then they move into... Um, a shared article again, and this time they come up with their own questions and they fill out a graphic organizer. And then you have a curated list of five articles in stage three 
they fill out the graphic organizer, they ask questions to a partner, they answer it, and then it moves to 10 articles. So you're giving them more choice. And now you let them choose between three graphic organizers. And then in stage five, you start modeling the online search process and they do some online search along with the curated articles that you have and eventually move to a place where they're going to do online research on their own and um, choosing their own graphic organizers and maybe even coming up with one on their own. So notice in stage eight, it's fully independent research, but in stage one, it's very teacher-centered. And what you're doing is you're moving students along these stages as they uh, grow more confident, as they figure out what to do, and as they become more comfortable with the notion of student choice. The third idea is, is pretty obvious, but it's something that I failed to do, which is model it. Um, this was one of the hardest things for me in my own journey toward empowering students. I didn't model the thinking process. I didn't t tell them what it looked like. I didn't model the protocols. You will need to model, hey, this is how we use a choice menu. Hey, this is how we do research. Hey, this is what it looks like. And my fear was that this was lacking, you know, authenticity or or that it wasn't allowing students to be, um, you know, really taking ownership of the learning. But what I realized is that when we model it for them, it is part of that gradual release approach. It is authentic to them. And you're helping them to gain confidence. The fourth idea, the fourth tip is to be mindful of cognitive load. So cognitive load is how much thinking that you have. You can almost imagine it like uh, when you're lifting weights, you hold a load and you have to break up how much you lift because if you hold weights, you know, a, a 50 pound weight in your hand for three minutes, it's going to begin to hurt, right? And you could actually injure yourself after a while. You become tired. Um, you see cognitive load happen all the time. Um, maybe you crammed for a test and you hit cognitive overload and you forgot everything the next day. Or maybe you were watching um, uh, a video, you were listening to a podcast like this right now, which unfortunately is the case sometimes with podcasts, and it's too much information and you find yourself overwhelmed. That is cognitive overload. Um, Dr. Sweller, the founder of the cognitive load theory, that whole notion, um, warns against PBL. He's actually someone... Um, despite how much I love his research, uh, he, he really doesn't like project-based learning because it creates what he calls extraneous cognitive load. This is um, where students are thinking about the project rather than the learning. They're thinking, you know, trying to figure out what do I do, what do I not do. They experience cognitive overload and they don't actually master the learning targets we want them to learn. I wrote a blog post, had a podcast episode as well about this in the past. You can check it out on spencerauthor.com where I address this. I actually think it's very um, possible, feasible for us to design project-based learning in a way that reduces cognitive load. But I do think this notion of extraneous um, uh, cognitive load is valid as we think about student choice. Um, the problem with minimal guidance is that sometimes student choice has too little guidance and students get overwhelmed. Um, they need scaffolds, they need support, they need background knowledge to be activated, um, but they can also experience what Barry Schwartz calls the paradox of choice, where there are too many options for them and they get overwhelmed. So with that in mind, this fourth tip is to be intentional with cognitive load. 
right? So what does that look like? Um, use consistent terminology as you go. Uh, sometimes cognitive load happens because students are confused about mismatch in terms and you just have to use common language. Um, Choice-based protocols for multiple activities. So use the same choice-based protocols from one week to the next week. Teach the protocols and don't overwhelm them with too many structures or protocols. Give them time to, to allow those to become sort of part of their muscle memory so they can focus on the choice and the learning rather than the protocol itself. Integrate consistent visuals. This reduces mental processing. I'm a huge fan of using visuals um, to create cues, whether it's um, you know icons, symbols, diagrams, graphs, any of those things that reduce cognitive load. Um, give students examples. So even if something is choice-based, sometimes they just need to see an example and that creates a schema for their work, which in turn reduces the cognitive load. Um, include adequate skill practice. So even when you're going choice-based, we need to have them practice their skills. Vary the grouping, right? So part of hitting cognitive overload is if you're not getting internal and external processing to allow the information to go through this rehearsal process where it goes from short-term to long-term memory. So make sure that you stop and do a think-pair-share. Make sure that you stop and have students jot down ideas. Um, break projects if you're going really choice-based with big projects into segments with deadlines and guideposts. Categorize the choices so that students can see which choices fit into which categories. And that allows them to Focus on one type of choice at a time. In some cases, limit options. Offer a manageable number of choices so they're not overwhelmed, right? We don't want them to hit that paradox of choice. And then integrate prior knowledge. The more students can tap into their prior knowledge, the better they will do in terms of mastering the content, accessing the choice. Part of why Geek Out blogs work so well, for example, is that students are experts in their geeky interest, and so it reduces the cognitive load needed to think about the blogging that they're doing. So as they learn how to blog, as they're working on the skills of writing, they have this background knowledge that's already really strong connecting to their geeky interest. Number five, do a choice audit of your procedures. So think through the procedures, think through the rituals, and ask yourself the question, what am I doing for students that they could be doing on their own? And then from there, begin creating a list, a checklist of all the different areas of student choice that you can integrate. And again, what your sequence will be so that you can take that gradual release approach that I mentioned before. Number six, collaborate. Just connect with a trusted colleague. Um, student choice can feel overwhelming. You're going to make mistakes. It's going to get tough. If you do this with another person, if you connect with a, a trusted colleague, it feels less lonely and you have a chance to learn from one another, to reflect together, and to grow. And finally, number seven, communicate to stakeholders. Let your parents and guardians know the, the goal of student choice is about empowerment. It's about self-direction. Talk about how it will prepare students for an unpredictable world as they navigate this maze. 
talk about what those skills are that students need in the future. In some cases, your school might have a graduate profile or something like that. Reference that and talk about how choice and empowerment connect to this graduate profile. Um, sometimes parents or guardians are going to say, how come you didn't help my kid out? How, what, what's going on? How come they were struggling right there? And what you have to say is student voice and choice includes productive struggle. It includes empowering students to make mistakes and to grow from that. And for that reason, it's not that I'm not helping them. It's that I'm helping them to become resilient and adaptable. And that's a good thing. But this has to be communicated to community members. So I really encourage you to make sure that you include it in your newsletters, in your parent meetings, any kind of moment that you're going to be talking to any stakeholders, any family members about what's going on, because it is a different kind of teaching. In the end, student choice can feel scary. It can be hard to give up control, but it's worth it. Engagement skyrockets. Students think critically, the class culture changes, and ultimately students will be prepared for an unpredictable future. And that's the ultimate goal. Again, by empowering them in the present, we are preparing them for the future. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Would you do me a favor? If you enjoy this podcast, would you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to this podcast? And would you click that little subscribe button? That allows you to, to get the podcast automatically in your podcast reader, whatever it may be. Um, again, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and go out and make something awesome.